Well, good morning again. We are still in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12. Uh, we'll be today looking at verses specifically 35 through 44. Before we do that, let us do the only reasonable thing at this point and, and ask the Lord God to give us his spirit that we might understand his word. Father, we thank you for uh, the incarnation. We, we thank you, Lord God, that uh, your son um, became the son of Mary, that you drew near to us, that your son came, uh, and, and he's not a ruler who is distant, who's far away in some castle, far away in some uh, capital city, performing machinations and uh, conspiracies against his enemies, but that he came, Lord God, in our midst and addressed the enemies within our own hearts. We thank you for the witness of the apostles. We thank you for Mark uh, and the time that he took to sit down and to write this account. Uh, and we thank you for our church that has defended it and protected it and carried it down to us. And we pray, Lord God, that we, as we open it this morning, that we would do so by your spirit that we would draw near to you by your spirit, that we would comprehend your word by your spirit, and that we would thus live accordingly. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, as the series of public debates with Jesus in the temple, uh, the series of public debates that we've been looking at began with Jesus in the temple attacking the figly faith of the temple leaders causing inquiries into the source of Jesus's and John's authority. They wanted to know, where do you get off going into the temple and attacking the money changers? This caused further inquiry into the source of Jesus's authority, and it ends here with an attack in the temple on, on its leaders. Jesus has been confronted time and time again, and what this is now what he's going to do, he's going to close the whole thing up by going back into the temple and attacking the very people he was attacking at the beginning. <laughs> right? This is ministry. He, he has not gone away into a town outside of Jerusalem. He is not retreating. He is not fading. He is not hiding. He is now, after he silenced them, going on the offensive. The series of public debates ends with a parabolic demonstration to the disciples of the true nature of the kingdom of God and what it means to be a disciple of that kingdom. What I love about this story is that we're going to get into some deep theology, but at the heart of it, at the end of it, when Jesus is going to teach his people, he's sitting around in the temple doing that most human of things, people watching. <laughs> if you stop and think about what he's doing, he's sitting on a bench in the temple watching people. Now, if you've ever done this, I do this. This is one of my favorite pastimes. My wife and I enjoy this pastime a great deal. This kind of thing actually humanizes me, humanizes Jesus for me more than a lot of things. It's this kind of thing. Think about it. He's so human, he likes to just sit around and observe people doing peopleish things. I'm telling you, at the Monroe Fair every year, I look forward to it again and again. There's a nice bench there in the shade, and you see people in their, all their wonder. <laughs> Which we'll, uh, we'll come back to in a minute. But this is, this is your Lord. This is your King. He's going to explain the Old Testament to some scribes who should have understood it but didn't. And then what he's going to do is he's going to sit around and he's going to just watch people. 
The substance of the final question is traditional to Jewish rabbinic methodology. Okay, what we're going to see here is Jesus is engaging the temple leaders in a way that's very common to rabbis of his time. He challenges them to resolve what seem to be discrepancies in Scripture. He, he poses them a question to try to, where he sees if they can reconcile two verses or two aspects of a verse that don't seem to go together. He assumes that both texts are true, and he's asking, essentially, his hearers to harmonize what they're reading. This is the way that rabbis would discuss the law. This is the way that theologians still discuss it, right? Why, why in one gospel, uh, with the Peter account, does the crow or does the cock crow twice, and in another, three times? Why does sometimes he appears to be executed on a Thursday and sometimes on a Friday? These are questions that you have to answer. Uh, I, I suggest you all look into the ones I just mentioned, because those are the easiest ones to defend against and explain. But that's essentially what Jesus is doing here, right? <laughs> Did God really say is almost a question that Jesus is posing to the temple leaders in this moment. He's playing devil's advocate. In this case, Jesus knows that he himself is both David's son and David's Lord. He knows this at this point. Jesus' opponents apparently have no answer to the difficult textual question. He asks this question, and they just stare at him. They have no way of understanding what he's asking or how to reconcile the issue. And this is the issue from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Okay? Now, remember, this is David who wrote this. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Mark's purpose in recording the incident was to give insight into Jesus' teaching that all scripture is about Jesus the Messiah. Notice what he's doing here. He's going to Psalm 110, which has nothing to do with messianic tradition in, to, to, according to the Jewish tradition. And he's teaching them what it has to do about him. Well, how does that Psalm 110 apply to Jesus? This is the way that Jesus always deals with the Old Testament. His point is always to show how the Old Testament is about him. It's his hermeneutic. It's his interpretive principle. Jewish scholars understood certain passages of the Old Testament applying to the Messiah and not others. Jesus' point is what? If they're all about Jesus and Jesus is the Messiah, the entire Old Testament is about the Messiah. That's something that they do not understand, something that he is trying to teach them. The one who would reign in God's kingdom was David's Lord, not merely his descendant. Right? This is what all the Jews are waiting for, the descendant of David. But yet, if you go to Psalm 110, you find out that it's not just his descendant, it's his Lord. Well, who is Lord to David? Who's David's Lord? Right? Who was his Lord during his day? Who has been his Lord since then? If you go through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they, almost, they always, always love to point out that no matter how good the king is that they currently have, he's nothing compared to David. They love to tell you this, right? There's no, no one who equals David. And yet David himself spoke of one who was greater than David. Mark wants his readers to connect this verse with the verse cited in the preceding section because Jewish interpreters often linked verses with key words. Right? There's key thematic ideas. If they keep mentioning farming, there's a point about farming they're trying to make. In the previous section, he mentioned the Shema, which says, Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now, David, now Jesus is quoting David, who's also using the word Lord. So Jesus, while he's sitting there, is trying to make this connection in their minds. 
We were just talking about the Lord, that there's only one of them. And who is it? It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now we're sitting here talking about the fact that David says to his descendant, you are my Lord. This is the point that Jesus, he's trying to make a connection for them. And he never at any point says, this is the connection I'm trying to make. Mark is recording this because what was Mark's very first verse in this gospel? This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, who is Jesus at this point making himself out to be? What I love about Jesus is that he has set his face towards the cross. Right? They have this monkey show trial for him where they're trying to show that he's, he's making himself out to be God, and they bring all these witnesses out, right? and, and <laughs> nobody can charge him with anything that sticks. And yet he's going around saying these kinds of things in this section that make it very clear who he thinks he is. And what I like is that he's just smarter than everybody, right? He would rather just sit around and watch people. But if he's going to answer dumb questions, he's going to at least answer them thoroughly. And he does so, so thoroughly that nobody else around him, the scholars can't figure out even what he's saying. So if you remember the show trial that he has, what does he eventually have to do? They bring out witness after witness and nobody can get anything to stick. So he's finally like, okay, fine. I'm going to do the thing that you're technically protected from in every legal system in the world, and that is I'm going to testify against myself, right? So the the primary witness in Jesus' trial is Jesus. But the mystery of the scripture is that all along, in stories like this, Jesus is saying exactly who he is. He's leaving no doubt. There is one Lord, and it's David's descendant. And if, if it's God who is the one Lord, and his descendant is the Lord, who does that make David's descendant be, right? Do you see the logic here, the, the through line? And this entire section, this whole portion, the thing they're really arguing about is Jesus' origins and his authority. Why are you going in the temple smacking things, people around overturning tables? Why are you doing this? They want to know, should we pay taxes? To see, right? They bring in political problems. They bring in theological problems. And Jesus is showing that he, he is an authority unto himself. Well, why? Because he's God. That's why. He's the God man. So here, this is what he is talking about. And it's not like he's changing the subject. He's finishing the conversation that they began back in chapter 11. This passage reminds us once more of the biographical focus of Mark and thus of the great importance to him to answer in various ways, as many as possible, questions about Jesus' origins. Jesus comes closer to revealing his identity in public here than in the earlier chapters of Mark, and it is not incidental that he does so in the temple, the place where people come to encounter their God, his truth, and their redemption. This passage, in fact, ends Jesus' public teaching. This is it. After we have this episode here, he, he transitions and then only teaches his disciples. This is the last public comment that he's going to make. <laughs> and the public comment he's going to make is the charge that they're looking for to put him to death. And they're not even smart enough to figure out that he just did it. I, just, I can't even imagine the wry little smile on his face the whole time. You know, oh, you, what do you got? I'm, I'm a very benevolent God. I will give you what you want. You want to put me to death? Well, here's what you need, he says. And he gives it to him. 
And they don't even understand what he said, so he walks away. He lives another four days. He's like, okay, well, I'll see you guys at the end of the week. But now let's dig into this. Okay, this is the setup here. This, this is an ongoing debate that we've been going through now for four or five weeks, and this is the end of it. This is his last word. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I like that little detail there because the normal people who are oppressed by the scribes are sitting there watching Jesus put them down. Right? Here are these people who are always telling them everything. They have an answer to every question. Nothing's too complicated for them. And Jesus is showing them to be unable to answer him. He's showing that they really, compared to him, know nothing. And so it says that the crowd's all like, oh, yeah, look at that. Right? You're putting them in their place. And it just is really humorous to me that they included this detail. So, I mean, if you ever imagine like a public debate, I don't, I don't think we've seen a decent public debate in this country since the 1830s. But that, it's as if they're having a public debate and you're cheering for, for one side and, and, the, and they just have an absolute slam dunk on them. After having been asked several questions in the preceding sections, Jesus now asks a question himself. But first, I want to point out something very interesting here that is the source of a great deal of conflict, which at the end, hopefully you'll understand that the conflict is stupid. Okay? Occasionally we need to hold things up and just laugh at them. Because what does he say? He says, David wrote. (laughs) Modern scholarship does not attribute Psalm 110 to David. So Jesus says that David wrote it. And if your modern scholarship says that he didn't, what's wrong? Jesus or your modern scholarship? It's a trick question, kids. Don't have to answer it, but thank you. (laughs) Now, what what I find uh, uh, fascinating is that we have, since modern scholarship has proven that David didn't write Psalm 110, we found these little things called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have very ancient manuscripts in them, and the ancient manuscripts go way back, way further back than Jesus' day, and in fact, David wrote Psalm 110. So what I like about this is that scholarship can help you actually prove things that you know about the Bible, but when it comes down to it, if Jesus said David wrote it, David wrote it. If Jesus says that Jonah was a real person, guess what? He's a real person. If he speaks of Abraham being a guy and not a myth, it's not a myth. So anytime your scholarship runs up hard and fast against what Jesus says, you've got serious problems if your scholarship trumps Jesus. Okay, I don't think anybody in this room is doing that, but I just want to put that out there. It's my obligation as a minister of the Word and Sacrament to make sure everyone understands where I'm coming from. Okay? Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus also affirmed the inspiration of the Psalms themselves, in particular, and the Old Testament in general. This is how we have very uh, lengthy arguments about how the New Testament came to be the New Testament, why these books and not others. The argument for the Old Testament is quite simple. Jesus Jesus validated what was and what wasn't scripture. He mentions the law and the prophets. What he doesn't mention is that intertestimonial book that is very helpful. You should read it. You know, all those extra books that the uh, Catholics add to their Bible, all those middle sections that are not inspired. 
Jesus and the apostles both speak uh, interchangeably about the Holy Spirit writing something, David writing something, God's word. They, they tell us which books are, in fact, in the Old Testament and which ones are not in the Christian Bible. Okay, Augustine called the Jews the bookshelf people, which is a funny name for them. But it's as if God right, gave them the books of the Bible and they faithfully carried them for thousands of years and delivered them to the apostles. That was Augustine's argument. But we see this um, idea in other places. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. That tells us a lot about how the scriptures were written. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right, So you go back to all the prophets, and none of the prophets are of men. They're of God. The purpose of the provocative question in verse 37 is to invite thought and decision. Jesus is challenging what is the popular theological, and tra- theological tradition of his day. If David referred to the Messiah as his Lord, he understood that the one who would receive the promise was far greater than himself. And now, do you think David understood it? David is told by God, you will have a son who will sit on the throne for eternity. Right? This is what David is hoping for. This is what all the people of God are hoping for. Do you think when David wrote Psalm 110 that he understood that he was talking about a God-man? No, he didn't. There's no way he could have. Nobody thought of that. And this is, going back several weeks, what I was talking about, where there are deeper truths in the, in the Old Testament than the authors could have co- possibly comprehended that you cannot comprehend unless, unless you understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? You're not going to understand what Psalm 110 was. It is really about until he comes along and tells you what it's about, shows you what it's about. And the entire Old Testament is this way. You cannot sit with the Old Testament open in front of you, and by osmosis come to believe in the Trinitarian God and the God-man Jesus Christ. You can't. Right now, the, he comes along, the apostles come along, and they explain to us exactly how the Old Testament's testify to Jesus. But here's the promise. I want you guys to understand, this was the promise. This is the thing that generations after generations after generations of Jews were looking forward to. This is it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, it's called the book of Judges, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I, look, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that is God's promise. So what happened? We know that Solomon built a house, the temple, is that the house that it sounds like he's talking about? A mere temple that later the Persians came and burned to the ground? Are, are David's sons the eternal king that they're talking about? Because what happened to them? They had their throne taken away. 
Right? In the end, the last one was taken into captivity. I believe they cut his thumbs off and he served other kings under their table. Fetching things with his mouth because he couldn't grab them with his hands. That was the last king of Israel. So what happened then? Is God a liar? Right? Or is there something more going on? Something that the Jews find it very difficult to understand. Jesus' point about Psalm 110 is that the promised heir is not only the son of David, he is also and especially his Lord. Now, this is very, I think, difficult for us because in our modern context, we like to do proof texting, right? We, I want to teach you about circumcision. I go look up all the, all, I just type in the word circumcision into esv.org. I get all the verses that use the word circumcision. I compile them. I come and I teach you about circumcision. You will learn very little about circumcision if you do it that way. I'm just going to say that. One of the things that Jesus does and that the apostles do is that when they quote from something, they assume that the whole thing applies to what they're saying about it. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, he's not just talking about a verse in Psalm 110. By the way, they didn't have those, right? <laughs> they didn't, that was invented by some French people in the late Middle Ages, the numbers. So when he quotes Psalm 110, what he's actually doing is he's applying all of Psalm 110 to what he's talking about. So if you really want to do some, I mean, if you want to learn how to do Bible study, do this, okay, metaphorically. You take your New Testament and you line it up against the Old Testament and all the places that in the New Testament they quote or refer to the Old Testament, you drive a stake right through it, okay, straight down. And then you go back to the Old Testament and you don't just read the verse because you'll also be a little flummoxed by the fact that they didn't exactly quote it verbatim. And that, when people start doing this project I'm talking about, throws them. Well, Paul didn't quote it exactly. Well, because Paul had to memorize it, right? And the other thing is when you um, translate from the Hebrew in the Old Testament now and we translate from the Greek to the New Testament, they're not going to line up. It's impossible. But drive a stake down through all these parts and go back and don't just read Psalm 110, verse 1. Read the whole thing. When they, when, they, when they mention the book of Joel and the first chapters of Acts, go back and read all of Joel. Okay, That's actually the way they did it. But that's not how we like to do it. We're like, oh, they quoted this one verse in Joel. We go, we read it. We have no idea what the context of Joel is, what the context of the chapter is, the context of the paragraph, and we think, okay, we understand it. But I'm telling you, if you do this, there, there will be. I, I st- when I do it, I'm still confused. I'm like Paul, what are you talking about? Have you ever had this? You go back and you look at what he quotes, and you're like, what? I don't, I don't, right? And I start to wonder about this process a little bit. I think, is it you or me? This is my favorite joke. Who is it though? Right? Don't be discouraged. But I think if you really want to learn how to study the Bible, I was saying last week, don't go buy a bunch of giant textbooks. Just do this. So my, this is all a setup for Psalm 110. What is Psalm 110 about? Well, it's about the Messiah. But there's interesting things in Psalm 110, like this person named Melchizedek. It mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Why? Because what does Paul tell us? Jesus is a priest, a high priest, in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? Well, Mekizledek is this very odd character in Genesis who comes from the city of Salem. Uh, he's the king, priest king, of the city of peace, because that's what Salem means. So, and he's not, he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But it says he's a high priest of the God. And he comes from the city of peace. 
And they don't tell us anything about his beginning, and they don't tell us anything about his end. And he comes to Abraham, the greatest Jew who ever lived, and Abraham bows down before him and pays him a tithe. This is the point the apostles make. Who's greater, the one who pays the tithe or the one who receives it? Okay, good. So this is who Melchizedek is, and this is, who, this is Jesus referring to Psalm 110 about this lordship, right? If there's someone who is greater than David, who's his son, but is also his lord, they're talking about somebody that doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. Some person who's coming, right, who's coming from inside Israel, who's coming from outside of Israel. And this should be playing in their, right? This is the thing that all of these people who are listening to Jesus should be thinking of. Well, he's talking about it, right? Okay, first off, the Jews, they don't have, Psalm 110 is not listed as a messianic psalm. So first off, Jesus, slow down. I'm, I'm, it's hard to keep up. And then when you start to think about Psalm 110, you think, what does he talking about? He is completely rewriting what it means to be the Messiah. And if you read Hebrews, this is exactly what Paul does. This is The argument I'm making about Melchizedek is Paul's. I'm stealing it from Paul. Jesus comes from outside Israel. He's the king of peace. He has neither beginning nor end because he's God, and yet he becomes a man, a descendant of David, to take the throne. So if he, <laughs> so what does that make him out to be? He's a Gentile. So what does that mean about the ultimate purposes of the Messiah? Is it just about the Jews? Is it about their national interests? See, this interpretation strikes at the very heart of the national political understanding of the Davidic promise. They understand that a Jew is going to rise up, he's going to be David's son, he's going to somehow rule forever. It's going to be amazing. But the promises of God are bigger than that. It's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than the temple. It's bigger than the the geopolitical issues of their day. When Jesus posed this question within the temple precincts, he stood before his suffering and death. He knows what's coming. It's only four days away at this point. He knew himself to be in a situation of conflict for the salvation of the people of God. The battle would not be fought against Rome or any other earthly power and had no national political goals. It was rather against the demonic powers of the spiritual world that he set himself. Victory demanded configuration with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is, again, another point. Jesus is saying, your idea of a Messiah is too small. It's too personal. It's too vindictive. God's promise to David is fulfilled by the cross, which, for Jesus, is the prelude to resurrection. Right? We, <laughs> the real enemy is death. That's the real enemy. It's not Rome. Right? We can defeat Rome. We did. Burned it to the ground. You're welcome. Right? Go vandals. And and yet what? There's still sin in the world. Where are the Persians? Right? Where are the Assyrians? Well, they're actually still killing people. I'm sorry. That was a bad example. Most empires come, come to nothing. That, and they come and they go. The thing that remains for every generation of people is the real enemy. And that's what Jesus is there to take on. Right? And he's like McKees. He doesn't have beginning or end. And he's the prince of peace. He's going to bring peace to the warfare that doesn't end. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. It's not about being a Jew, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why is Jesus the Messiah? Right? Because they drove nails through him after whipping him and beating him and pulling his beard out, and they put him to death. His, right? his earthly father had nothing to do with it. It's because when they tried to take his life from him, they, could, right? they were not victorious. He laid it down. And why did he lay it down? Because he could take it up again whenever he wanted. Right? He is who he is, not because of where he was born or who he was born to, but because when, he, <laughs> when they dropped a nuclear bomb on him, Right when they took the breath out of his lungs, that wasn't the end of the story. Right when he, when a, a man can defeat death, is there any other enemy that can stand up to him? He has the power of what life and death in his very hand. That's what makes him the king of peace. Right? What's the war that we're fighting? You go all the way back to the beginning. There will be enmity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. Enmity means war. Right? This is why the Christmas songs say the war is ended. The war's over. And this is what Jesus is saying about himself while he's sitting here answering these questions with them, and they aren't smart enough to figure out its true intent. Right? This is beyond, well beyond anything that they're used to. Now, my question for us is, is this the way that we study the Scriptures? Right? Sometime this week, I, I'm... I'm confident that you sat down and you read your Bible. And there was a verse mentioned from the Old Testament. There, if you're reading the New Testament, there had to be. If you're reading the Old Testament, then that verse that you were reading somewhere in there was mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus comes, and the people who should be bowing down to him and celebrating him want to put him to death. Why? They had Bibles. They had a temple. They had everything they needed to be reconciled to God in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, it's because they didn't know God. And the reason they didn't know God is because they didn't really know the Word of God. Right? How many of us this week looked, right, had a surface reading of the Scriptures just like what these scribes do? They're the professionals, for goodness sakes. Aren't we professional Christians? Right? Isn't this what our whole life is about? It's what we say. Davidic sonship of the Messiah was a scribal idea firmly grounded in the Old Testament literature. They had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of proof text. Someone's going to come, it's going to be David's son. And that's as, that's as deep as it went. And who's he going to save? Israel. Where God's real purpose right, was that someone was going to come who wasn't just a man and he was going to save the whole world. But you see this desire for the son of David. You see it. You hear it. Because all, right, during this time that Jesus has come to the temple, he's come to Jerusalem, it's the festive time. Everybody's remembering all the great stuff God had done for them generations and generations ago. And this idea of the son of David is just, it's like, it's like us when we get near Christmas. We talk a lot more about the incarnation than we normally do. And so what you, right, we've already heard this yearning for the son of David in the people of Israel. Back in Mark chapter 10:47 the blind man when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth he began to cry out and say Jesus son of David have mercy on me He had some conception 
of his personal, right? He, he's blind. He need, he's in need. He is in pain. He suffers. And he understands on some level that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David. But do you think he understood what Jesus is explaining here today? That he's going to destroy death. That he's greater than, <laughs> than merely the savior of Israel. No. His, his savior was too small. His Messiah was too small. As, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, Mark 11, 9 through 10, and those who went out before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Right? It's the son of David. Throw open the doors and let him in and begin to rejoice. Somehow, we don't really understand, this guy is the one who's going to save Israel. He's come to his throne in Jerusalem. But he came to save more than Israel, didn't he? He came to sit on a throne that's higher than Jerusalem, didn't he? The problem that that Jesus is addressing in this section, the problem that we've seen all too often, is the Messiah that they're expecting, the Messiah that they believe in, the Messiah that they want so badly is a wimp, is insufficient, is personal, right? That blind man's savior was the savior of his eyes alone, on one level. These people who are heralding Jesus, they are heralding him as the savior of a city. Where are the people who, want, who have a heart for the whole world? Where are the people who have an understanding that, you know, I need him, you need him, the people down the street need him, the people in the state next to us need him, everything needs him. Everyone and everything in this world needs deliverance from the thing that is at war with us that we cannot defeat, and that is death. What Jesus is coming is saying, your Christology sucks. You guys are are so lame with what you think that I'm going to do. It's pathetic what you think I'm going to do. And he says with a wry smile, well, you know, (laughs) there's only one Lord, there's only one Yahweh. And, you know, David, he said... Yahweh, my son. Anybody? They're like, oh man, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't. Let's go back and ask him more questions about whether we should pay taxes, right? That's what that's what counts. Should we pay taxes? You're the people of God. Does your Christology include this, right? Is 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 God the Savior of just your eyes? Is he just the savior of your small town? Is he the savior of any town? Right? I mean, (laughs) it it gets very confusing. I mean, my kids this week had a lot of questions. There's a shooting in a Texas church, and then we assassinate some foreign general who's a terrorist. And in their mind, there was a conversation I had with one of them where they thought they were linked. Right? And and geopolitical problems. And we, we go to church. We know this church was attacked. And like it's all very confusing in their minds, right? And and this is the people of God when he found, he came to them, their very personal concerns, the concerns of their nation. But where is the person who stands up and says, you know, the Messiah of God? If this is God that we're talking about, he is not going to just save one people. He's not going to just save one city. He's going to save every city of every people in the whole world. And and the thing that is really the problem isn't being poor. The problem isn't the water sources. The 
The problem isn't how do we all get access to oil because we love it so much. The problem is death. And death came from disobedience and sin. Jesus is challenging their Christology. Does he challenge your Christology? When is the last time that you read something, right? You were reading and you went a little further than Jesus came as a baby. Mary, did you know, right? We all love that. Well, she did know, first off. Okay, I get so frustrated. The angel told her. I mean, I understand, I understand. She didn't really know, like Abraham didn't really know, but she had a better idea than you. I mean, and the people singing the song. I just, I love candy canes. I love this time of year, right? And, and I mean, what is my Christology really about? What is all of this really about? Right? How, right? How many of you guys right now are like, I don't know what Iran is going to do, and it stresses me out. I wonder if I got to start carrying AR-15 in my trunk, the way they're talking about, like, secret terrorist cells all over the place. But who's the king? Jesus, Right? And what does he have planned for us? What does he have planned for his kingdom? What does he have planned for the people of God? What is it that they're supposed to be doing? When is the last time he sat down with you and he went over Christology with you and he showed you where the, the, the Savior that you believe in is just too small? Now, what I, we're going to move on because I think I've said all I need to say about that for the moment. Because he, he is demonstrating his authority to say the next... I th- I, the people that are talking to him, the scribes who want him dead, I think are beginning to clue into who he is. Because now he's, right, he's giving his authority, and he has all the authority in the world to say the next thing he's going to say, which is pretty, pretty offensive. I mean, he just sat down and had a discussion with the scribe and encouraged the scribe and said, yeah, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And now he's going to do that horrible thing that is totally not okay in our day, which is make a very broad generalization. Right? Generalizations are, the, are a big no-no. You can't say all women do this or all men are like that or gay people are. You can't make these generalizations. Oh, wait. Wait, hold on. It says right here, Mark 12, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Well, wasn't there a scribe that you just thought was pretty... Okay, he's making a generalization, I guess. So you can make generalizations. He says... Scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense will make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He says, you know, all those scribes, they're hypocrites. They're wicked and evil and God will destroy them. Does that mean he's going to destroy every single one of them? Well, only if they remain unrepentant. Is it likely, though, that there are some scribes who come around to Jesus' way of thinking? Well, there was one who was close. He makes a generalization because, (laughs) because this is logic. This is simple human logic. You can say that women are not as strong as men, right? Just think, oh, the tension in the air when you say something like that these days. (laughs) Boys are different than girls, right? It's strange how uncomfortable I am saying that sometimes. Right? But this is the age in which we live. Just kind of make sure. There's... He's making some broad generalizations about scribes. I'm just going to explain it for a moment. They wore long white robes so everyone would know they were a scribe. 
If you wanted to have a serious dinner party, like a real dinner party, like one that's really happening, you invite a scribe. That seems weird to me, but... They were not allowed to be paid for their work. But they also had very strict rules about hospitality, right? And if old widow Jenny really makes awesome pie, you're going to go and you're going to stay there, and she has to let you stay there if you come, because that's the rules of hospitality. And Jenny, whether she can afford it or not, will make you pies, because that's the rules of hospitality. And they literally devoured the wealth of a widow in this way. Think about that. When they would walk down the street in the marketplace and people saw them, they would bow. If you were sitting, you would stand up. In this country, um, some of those rules apply to the president. When the president's standing, no one sits. This is a rule, actually. Who do the scribes think they are, right? They're supposed to be these people who aren't paid for their work. They're supposed to be amongst the poorer classes, but they're amongst the wealthier classes. How did that work out, right? Like congressmen are supposed to be public servants, and yet they're anyway. Right? We, all, we, <laughs> we recognize scribes in our modern culture. And they are devouring the wealth of widows. Jesus condemned the scribes for their desire for the tokens and, of status and for the self-satisfaction that they perpetuated. Exodus 22.22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That's what the word of God says. For those who accept the Bible as a rule of faith and conduct, there is no excuse for disobedience. None. The law teachers not only loved the outward show and empty glory of religious observance, which is the sin of pride, they also loved money, which is the sin of covetousness. Yet all the time they did this under cover of lengthy prayers, a fact which invested all their other sins with the new and awful quality of hypocrisy. It's what they had respectable sins, they're called, and so do you. Right? Well, they're, they're scribes, and so they dress like that. They're scribes, and so we give them an honor. And they're scribes, and we, do, we treat them this way and that way and this way and that way. And this is, right, of course, we, we overlook certain things about them because they're the scribes. They're in charge. What do you want from us? And yet they're hypocrites. And yet they're covetous. And every culture has what they call respectable sins, sins that everybody does, and so it's okay. Aphorist much, Right? We have an obesity problem in the United States. So you think eating and 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 feasting and feasting and feasting might be a respectable sin. So he condemns them outright. And what do they devour? They devour widows. And so we come to the last story here. We come to the last part, the part that Jesus is going, he said everything he's going to say, he silenced everyone he's going to silence, and now he's going to just sit down and, uh, and enjoy one of his little hobbies, people watching. And this is what it says. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now I'm going to ask you this question. She's a widow, right? It's not an accident. Again, remember this. They use the word widow in the last story. They devour widows' houses. And here is the one that they're devouring. The religious leaders are devouring the woman who's actually 
faithful. Now, if you were watching her and she has two pennies left and she's going to give half of it to, to God and half of it she's going to keep for herself, would anybody fault her for that? I would be like, hey, you know, move along, honey. There are some other givers in this church who give plenty. You just go. Go. And Jesus points out, hey, there are some rich people, and they come and they give an obscene amount of money. I mean, they, look, they give abundantly. But this is the point that he's making, because his disciples are there and he wants them to understand, because he wants them to understand what it means to be his disciple. It's not what you put in. It's what you keep for yourself. She withholds nothing. Right? If you come and you have $100,000 and you put in $10,000, people say, oh my gosh, $10,000, that's a lot. But you saved 90000 for yourself. She comes with two pennies. She keeps none of it. She gives both. Right? If you want to know how faithful you are, you who are richer than 98% of the people who have ever lived on this planet. That is a fact. Richer in the word of God, richer in resources, richer in time, richer in convenience, richer in health, than 98% of the people who have ever lived on this planet. I don't care how much you give. I want to talk about how much you hold back. That's the thing that Jesus has been trying to get them to understand is the measure of faithfulness. It's not how much you give, right? The rich young ruler, he, he lacked one thing, and it was the thing. He comes to the scribe, and the scribe is close, right? He's very close, but you're close to the kingdom of heaven. You're just missing one thing. You miss what it's all really about. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He is a Messiah that's bigger and better than anything anyone could have possibly have imagined. And what is he going to hold back? Does he reserve anything for himself? And the widow who knows the Lord God comes and what does she give? Does she hold anything back? So this is the challenge of the word of God this morning. Go from here. The Lord God is waiting for you to devote your entire self, your head, your heart, and your hands to him. Don't measure by what you're giving. Look at your life. What are you holding back? What are you saving for yourself? Right? You get there, right? You got two pennies. <laughs> You're like, maybe I'll, buy, I'll give one to God and I'll buy some bubble gum so I won't, at least then I act like I'm chewing so I'm not hungry. And you come to that moment where you're going to put both of them in there. Is that hard? Yes. If you worry about what you're going to do, are you, right? you're not thinking about who your God really is. Learn about Jesus. Learn who he really is. And so when he says, die to yourself and give it all to me, you don't measure it by how much you give. right? You measure it by how much you don't. Well, I just confused myself. But I think you understand what I mean. It's not what you give. It's what you withhold. And I think we need to all take a long look in the mirror and we need to consider that question. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your son, the incarnation. I pray, Lord God, that we would go from here and that we would um, not fool ourselves, not convince ourselves that we are great saints and that we are great in the kingdom of heaven because of how much we give, but that we would see how much we withhold, how much we hold back for ourselves. 
I pray, Lord God, that everyone in this room would draw closer to you this week, that everyone in this room would go from here and they would know you better, that they would give more of themselves to you and to your work and to your law. And I pray, Lord God, that Christ would reign over larger and larger and larger portions of our lives, that we would bring more and more to him and submit everything to him, our head and our heart and our hands. And I pray, God, that you would defend us and protect us in these difficult days, that you would give us eyes to see beyond this world of the kingdom of heaven, and that we would devote ourselves entirely to that kingdom. And amen.